Welcome to the Go and Teach Bible Study program presented by the Monta Vista Church of Christ in Phoenix, Arizona. We want to thank you for joining us today as we examine the truth of God's Word and the answers it holds to life's most important questions. If you have questions about this lesson or would like to study further, please contact us at montavistacoc.com. Now let's open our Bibles and study God's Word together. Thanks for joining me on the Go and Teach radio program. My name is Ryan Goodwin. I preach for the Monta Vista Church of Christ here in Phoenix, Arizona. If you've got a Bible handy, let's turn to the book of 2 Timothy in the New Testament. I've always had a soft spot for 2 Timothy, as do most preachers or teachers of the Bible. It's Paul's second letter to the young man, and it represents the culminating message from one aged preacher to his younger counterpart. It is, in every sense of the analogy, the passing of Paul's torch to Timothy. It's his final message of hope, endurance, and salvation in the waning days of his earthly life. Often, when I ponder my own death, whenever it might take place, I think about what I would say to my children, to my grandchildren, to younger Christians or young preachers who have labored with me in the kingdom. I suppose nothing would be more suitable than following Paul's pattern. So in our program today, I would like to consider some of the primary themes found in 2 Timothy in the form of wise sayings that we might impart to the younger generation. But first, a little bit of context. If you're not familiar with the second epistle to Timothy, it's here in the New Testament, and it was written very near the end of Paul's life. In fact, By reading the letter, you certainly get the sense that Paul expected his life to end very soon. This was probably during a second imprisonment in Rome. More than likely, Timothy is back in the city of Ephesus. And knowing that his life is soon to be over, Paul wants to make sure he imparts to Timothy his final thoughts, his last lessons, so to speak, to the young preacher. Now, Timothy and Paul have known each other for quite a long time. Their introduction to each other seemed to take place here in Acts chapter 16 in a city called Lystra. It says in Acts 16 verse 1, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. Timothy proceeds to follow Paul on this journey and others. And he proves to be such a valuable asset to the apostle that Paul is practically distressed any time they have to be separated from each other. As we read the book of Acts, as well as a number of Paul's epistles, we find that Timothy proves his value over and over and over again. He's a man who can be trusted. He's a man who's very eager to work. He's a man that Paul feels like is a kindred spirit and a son in the faith. 
He cares about him very much, which is why he wrote this letter, perhaps the very last thing that Paul ever wrote. So what are some of the main themes, the main lessons that we can learn, things that we can take from 2 Timothy and pass on to the people in our lives, the Timothys that we're going to meet, the young people that we can have an influence on? Well, let's start in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. Notice here, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So the first lesson that we can pass on to other people is, well, to pass it on at all. The fact that we would even go out of our way to pass on the message of the gospel means that we care about people and love people. And if we didn't love them, then I suppose the best thing we can do is not teach them the gospel. It works to their benefit, to our benefit, and most especially to God's benefit, to pass on what we have heard. If we know the gospel, we've accepted it and believed it and obeyed it, then it's time to teach it to other people. You can't keep the gospel hidden. You can't tuck it under your bed. It can't be something that stays in the pocket of your heart. You have to pass it on. Teach it to other people. Entrust it to others who will be able to teach to others as well. Often we measure the totality of our life's work by the number of people that we've affected somehow. We hate to think of the possibility that we're leaving this life with untapped potential or unmet expectations or people who we know that we should have helped but didn't. Like a sporting event, we should leave everything on the field and never keep the gospel to ourselves. I learned several great lessons from this verse. First of all, that the gospel is dependent on us for its propagation. If I will not go into the world and preach, then who will? If I don't talk to that neighbor about the gospel, who will? If I leave this life with unconverted loved ones, I'll always regret it in the afterlife because my chance to help them has passed. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells the story of a very rich man, unnamed, and a very poor man named Lazarus. And they both die, and the rich man goes to a place of incredible torment, whereas Lazarus, the extremely poor man, goes to a place of paradise where he's comforted. Now, the rich man obviously hates his destination, and he has brothers back on earth still alive who he wants to warn. When you pick up here in verse 27, as he is begging Abraham, who he can see across this great gulf, Abraham, who's in paradise, comforting Lazarus, the rich man begs Abraham, is there anything that can be done to help my brothers? He said, I beg you, father, that you send to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, as in they have scripture. They have the witness of God's revelation. Let them hear them. And the rich man begs him, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But Abraham responds, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be pers uh, persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Now, this rich man had family back at home, back on earth, alive, living with opportunity, with a chance to change, and he did not want them to end up in that place of torment. Similarly, if you and I don't warn the people around us, there's nothing that we're going to be able to do about it in the afterlife, and we will regret it literally 
forever. But second, we have a responsibility to pass it on to others. Remember that somebody took the time to teach you about salvation. Somebody put the effort into answering your silly questions. Somebody took the time to confront your skepticism or your unbelief. Somebody was patient when you doubted or when you tried to hold on to sinful habits. You've got to show that same kind of love to somebody else. This verse also reminds us that one cannot remain in the younger generation forever. There's a time certainly to learn and go through the hearing process, but we need to mature and eventually start doing the entrusting, the teaching. Hebrews 6 verse 1 says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. For Timothy, there was a time that he needed to learn from Paul, that he needed to play second fiddle and be okay with that, to observe, learn, grow, mature. Now Paul is saying, it's your time to teach. It's your time to entrust. It's your time to take the lead. Timothy didn't need to worry about who would be entrusted with the gospel. He simply needed to find people like him, faithful, dependable people. In other words, we need to spend time around people who are just as excited about the gospel as we are, people who are hungry for more and not cast our pearls before swine. There are people interested in the gospel, and we just need to have our eyes open and teach them. Now, here's a second lesson that I learned from the book of 2 Timothy, that we need to have a high tolerance for pain if we're going to follow Christ. 2 Timothy 2 verse 3 says, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ. This statement reminds Timothy that he's not alone in the battle, but that others are enduring alongside him. He's in good company when he faces trials and temptations and persecution and torment. After all, Jesus himself said in Matthew 10 verse 22, You will be hated by all on account of my name. Christians are often compared to soldiers in the scriptures. Romans 6 verse 13, Ephesians 6 verses 10 through 18 describes the armor that we're supposed to wear as soldiers of Christ. 1 Peter 2 and verse 11. That's terminology that is entirely appropriate given the seriousness of our task. We're not playing a game here. Christianity isn't a hobby. It's not a sport. It's not something that you do on the side. Being a Christian isn't like being a Boy Scout. Being a Christian isn't like being part of a sports or athletic club. Being a Christian is not like being a fan of a favorite sports team or following a favorite TV show or following politics. Christianity isn't something that you turn on and turn off like the television or a gaming console. Christianity is spiritual warfare. It is spiritual warfare against the principalities and powers of darkness. We're not just engaged in one more social activity, but the destruction of mighty fortresses, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6. In the campaign against Satan, we're to be active participants, not spectators, not commentators, not pundits. Notice that the apostle encourages Timothy to be a good soldier, which means that there is no tolerance in God's army for lazabouts and slackers. The soldier's life is one of privation and one of sacrifices. He marches, he fights, 
He is exposed to cold and heat and storm. So here's a few practical observations then out of 2 Timothy 2 verse 3. I have to learn to roll with the punches. Bad situations shouldn't derail my faith. Setbacks must be overcome. And I have to be okay with that. I have to be okay accepting that being a soldier is not just a walk in the park, but that it is hard. And I can't let hardships make me bitter. I have to see it as my opportunity to serve, that it is my chance to show valor, that it is my duty and it is my honor to be a part of God's army. I have to be happy and content even when life is hard. And Paul's life was hard. As he was writing 2 Timothy, he was perhaps chained to a wall in a prison cell. He was miserable, cold, wet, suffering, surrounded by guards, with nothing but the prospect of death waiting over him. He had destruction looming over his head. And yet, under such circumstances, he could write things like in Philippians chapter 4, where he says in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you've revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In Paul's final letter to Timothy, he could sum up his life in this way. In chapter 4, verse 6, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. To him, life was a fight. Life was a war. Life was a race, a race that would push him to his physical, emotional, and spiritual max. But that's what soldiers do. That's what soldiers do. Moving on, there's a third lesson that I take away from 2 Timothy that I would want to pass on to younger Christians, and that is to stay focused. Chapter 2, verse 4 says, No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Obviously, Paul isn't telling Timothy that he can't have a family or to participate in secular activities because most of the other apostles were married. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 5 mentions that. Paul makes note of the fact there that just as Peter was married and the other apostles were married, that Paul also had the right to be married. Many of the other apostles had jobs or children. They bought and sold property. They participated in other secular activities. The apostle's point to Timothy is that he can't let carnal distractions unnecessarily divide his attention. There are many physical activities that are good, wholesome, honest, but they're immaterial to the true meaning of life, which is to serve God. Marriage, for example, is wonderful, but it will not exist in the afterlife. The same goes for food, for money, for jobs, for any hobby or any activity, any sport. The only thing we take with us into the judgment is the collection of our deeds, whether they're good or bad. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 now. 
And notice the way he puts it here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, that requires some focus, doesn't it? To be pleasing to God, whether at home or absent, to make it our ambition to please God, and to think about the kind of story, the kind of life that I'm leaving behind. You and I are going to be judged based on what we do with life. The good things and the bad things, God will see it all, God will take note of it all, and we will be judged based on what we have done. That's a plain and simple statement that Paul makes. So do we have it as our ambition to please God? Do we have it as our singular focus to please the one who enlisted us as soldiers in his army? We must stay focused on the task at hand. But in order to stay focused, we have to play by the rules. 2 Timothy 2 verse 5 says, If anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Clearly, there's a literal application to this truth, but Paul's primary concern was Timothy's spiritual journey. Of course, it's important if you're going to run a marathon that you need to keep the rules in a marathon. If you're going to play a football game, you need to keep the rules of football. But again, Paul's main concern was the spiritual side of it. His point then is that Timothy's participation in the affairs of life must be abutted by God's rules, by God's doctrines. Jesus makes the same point clear in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. <clears throat> As he says here in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And he goes on to say that there are many people on the judgment day who will say, well, Lord, didn't we do all this stuff? Lord, Lord, did we not? Did we not? And God's response is going to be, I do not know you. If you don't follow God's will, if you don't play by his rules, then it really doesn't matter what else you do. You can do all kinds of things, no matter what the motivation is, but God alone sets the rules. God alone sets the path that we need to take in order to arrive at the destination of salvation. The Christian, therefore, must not feel that he or she is above or exempt from following the Bible in any area. Consider the following applications. Like any foot race, a marathon or whatever, spiritual growth has no permissible shortcuts. You can't find the cheap, easy path to spiritual victory or maturity. These things can only be gained by following the course, which entails learning from our mistakes, overcoming conflicts, and enduring ridicule. Rules, second of all, should not make us feel trapped. We shouldn't resent rules. While we're most certainly constrained by them, they're also put in place for our welfare. Go all the way back to the old law. And in Deuteronomy chapter 10, and notice verses 12 and 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, 
and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. All of that, the rules, the laws, all of that constraint was for their good. Not only that, but cheating never helps anybody in the long run. Proverbs 13 verse 15 says, Good understanding produces favor, but the way of the treacherous is hard. Disqualification is the only result from failing to heed the rules of conduct. Even people who exert great effort in the kingdom can be undone if they disrespect the rules. Paul made a good point about that, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 9. Notice what he has to say here in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 26. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I buffet my body, and I make it my slave, lest possibly, after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. So what he's saying is, I live my life in a very controlled manner. I follow the rules. I follow God's law. I buffet myself. I discipline myself. I am careful to walk by the rules and observe God's commandments so that I myself will not become disqualified, so that I myself will not lose the salvation that cost God so much to freely give to me. So as we bring our radio program to a close, I want to give you four things to remember. Four things, quickly, that we can pass on to the younger generation to keep in mind. Remember God's promises and his power. 2 Timothy 2, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, Paul writes, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. God keeps all of his promises. And one of the most important ways to keep things in perspective in life is to recall the great deeds of God. Read the Psalms sometime, and you'll see the great comfort that came to the Israelites in their times of suffering when they remembered God's loving kindness. But second, remember those who paved the way before you. Second Timothy 2 verse 9 says, For which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. Remember the sacrifices that were made by previous generations of believers. Admire believers who were unwilling to sell the gospel or to compromise for physical things, where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. In a sense, we need to remember our spiritual heritage. It's our lineage based on the spirit, not on the flesh. Number three, Remember the unstoppable message. 2 Timothy 2 verse 9 says, For the word of God is not imprisoned. Take comfort in the fact that ours is a message that cannot itself be imprisoned. It cannot be isolated. It cannot be contained. Even as Paul was writing his message from a prison cell, awaiting the end of his days, the message of the gospel was still going forth. In Isaiah 46 God speaks to the prophet, My word will not return to me empty without accomplishing all that I desire of it. And fourth, remember the goal. Second to the two and verse ten. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. My friends, there is a point behind this life. And it's not summed up in your career accomplishments, in your money, in your possessions, your political power. If you remember your goal in all things and determine the course of your life based on your ardent, unwavering desire to go to heaven, 
then you will hear those blessed words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. Now, if you're not a Christian, perhaps there's something that we talked about in our program today that has piqued your curiosity. Maybe it's pricked your heart, made you feel a little bit guilty about the way that you've been living or neglecting your spiritual life. If you have any questions about the Bible, about God, about our faith, then please reach out to Montevist, and we'd love to sit down and have a Bible study with you. And that's all we'll offer. The Bible, plain and simple. No human filters, no human opinions. Just the plain and simple good news of salvation offered to all people who are willing to accept it on God's terms. Thank you for joining us today. To hear this program again, please visit our website at montavistacoc.com. If you're in the Phoenix area, come visit us at the Montavista Church of Christ. We're located at 2202 North 40th Street. We have Bible classes for all ages each Sunday morning at 9.30 and again on Wednesday night at 7. For more information about the Montavista Church of Christ or to request a personal Bible study, please go to montavistacoc.com. Amen.